0: Hey friend, welcome back to the Semi-Seminarian. Here we are, another week, another episode of our Bible study. We're calling the Bible for grown-ups. This week we conclude our series. We're calling the end, I guess you might say this is the end of the end. We conclude this series by taking a look at the book of Revelation. As I approach this subject this last week and really thinking and studying about it, one of the things I think is just so important when we get a basic understanding of the Bible is to have a basic understanding of this book of Revelation. There are so many particulars of the symbology that is contained within Revelation that it's and so open to interpretation that it's it's just not possible in this medium to truly delve into every particular. But rather, as we want to do in the Christian tradition, we look at this book and hope that we can find Jesus and the gospel message of Jesus, the good news of Jesus contained within that message. It's what I hope to do by trying to highlight who is Jesus throughout the book of Revelation. I hope that you will enjoy this episode. We'll see you on the other side.
1: Okay, so for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the end of the world. I wasn't really trying to talk about this kind of stuff in relation to Halloween and stuff like that. But, but you have to admit, some of the stuff in Revelation can be kind of spooky. Uh, sometimes a little, some, it can be scary. So, but you know what? Whether you think that or not, let, let me just ask you this. How many of us would say the book of Revelation is intriguing but confusing, exciting but sometimes scary? Right? Yeah. Right. Everybody, you know, everybody will say, man, why would you preach out of Revelation?" Right, because there's all of that weird stuff in there. There's dragons and there's beasts. There's multiple heads. There's this number six six six. There's all sorts of numbers and symbols throughout the Revelation. You can read about twelve stars and ten horns and seven heads and six wings and four bowls of incense and two olive trees and a partridge and a pear tree, all in this one book. A lot of different stuff. A partridge and a pear tree. Nobody. I don't get. I don't even get a chuckle. I don't even get a groan. Thank I you. Did. And the challenge is so many people, the truth is, myself included, but when we think about it, when we, the book, when we try to read it, sometimes we can get creeped out. Problem is, uh, one of the reasons why I think that we uh, will often have people get creeped out whenever they think about the revelation um, is because they don't know how to read it. They don't actually know. What's the, what is the book even talking about? Why is it even being said? Right? We're going to answer these questions tonight, and I hope that as you read it and begin to understand it, that you actually experience something that's actually said in the book. The very beginning of Revelation 1 says that you are blessed if you read it, and you're blessed if you hear it. I know it might sometimes be confusing. All of the symbology can uh, seem weird. right? But the reason for the revelation is to build your faith. God gives us the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's verse 1, chapter 1. I just said that, right? The revelation of Jesus Christ. And God is showing us what is to come at the end of time. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ... Right, and again, I am teaching this tonight from the you know mainline Protestant Christian perspective here. again, these images, these images that come to us from, the, from, he, from Hebrew tradition, things that are borrowed from the uh, Hebrew scripture or what we might call the Old Testament, they might have different interpretation through the lens of the Jewish faith, and I do not mean. To deny that interpretation. That's just not the purpose of my teaching tonight. My teaching is, my purpose is to teach this from the Christian tradition. Right? Through the Christian context. So, please keep that in mind. Uh, Maybe not you, but maybe if you're listening on the podcast, maybe... You might hear something and think, well, I didn't know that that's how Jewish people interpreted this imagery or that imagery. And that might not be the case in the Jewish tradition. I'm making a Christian argument, okay? So let me begin with a little bit of backstory about the Revelation. And then break it down in a way that I hope that we can uh, embrace it and understand it. So the book is written by John, right, who was the last living of the 12 original apostles, disciples of Jesus. Now, what's very interesting is, if you know about what happened to the, the, apostles, the, the, the apostles, the disciples who then become the apostles, what actually happens to them uh, after the resurrection, because they actually all experience persecution, each one of them willing to die for their faith, and, okay, Judas kills himself, John dies. Uh, but he had been exiled on, he's the only one that dies of an old age, but he's been exiled to Patmos. I've got another story from early Christian nutrition, tradition tonight that I will tell you about John that might make you allow uh, you to put him in this martyr uh, situate, uh, uh, category if you believe this tradition I'm going to tell you about in a minute. 10 of the, of the original disciples were willing to die Rather than renounce the fact that they saw Jesus die and they saw Jesus alive. And to me, that's just remarkable. Put yourself in their shoes. I mean, I look at my own life and think, man, I am a nobody. I'm just a fisherman. I'm nobody. Who am I against the Roman Empire? And you know what? If I just admit to them, yeah, we made it up. Jesus really died. Right? But I believe in my heart still that I know Jesus, I saw Jesus resurrected. Then what difference does it make if I tell the Romans what they want to hear? I don't want to be killed for it. These 10 dudes were so convicted by the fact that they did see Jesus alive, they weren't willing to fake anything. 10 of them died the death of a martyr rather than just admitting. When we said that we saw Jesus alive after his death, we lied. Right? And they just weren't willing to do that. Well, there's one guy left. His name is John. And this is about 62 or so years after the resurrection of Jesus. About the year 95 AD. Okay? So, we're going to get to 100 and it's going to become the next century. First century, second century. 95, right at the end of the first century, John is living in Ephesus, right here, Ephesus. Um, And and there was an emperor by the name of Domitian who says, I want you all to worship me as God. And John, like his buddies, said, No, I've actually seen the Lord and you ain't it. and I'm not going to worship you. John is considered to have been exiled to Patmos during a time of persecution, a wider persecution of Christians by this uh, Roman ruler here, uh, Domitian. Revelation 1 and 9 says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was put on the island in exile because of my preaching the word of God, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's how we know, that's how he got there. A biblical scholar from Yale Divinity, um, Adela Yarborough Collins, she writes these words. Early tradition says that John was banished to Patmos by the Roman authorities, and this tradition is credible because banishment was a common punishment used during the imperial times for a number of Offenses And among those were the practices of magic or astrology and prophecy. John was prophesying about the return of Jesus. Right? The Roman Empire saw that. they Look, he had a sizable following by 95. How do we know? Because he writes his gospel account of Jesus Christ. And he was so important about probably 80, 85, 80. And he was important enough at that time that his memoir gets saved and passed around. That's how we know that guy was important and had a sizable following. Right? He had to have people who had to make copies of these writings and then distribute them. Right? When you think about that kind of stuff, it's like, oh, okay, I can see how. Even though there was this Roman uh, emperor, Domitian, who, is, who has control over your life. John still has a certain amount of power. The emperor can't just go and cut his head off. He's got enough size following here in Ephesus, which is um, what used to be called Anatolia. That's modern-day Turkey today, in case, Mm. right? Northern part of the Middle East, where Europe uh, ends and the Middle East begins or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Okay? Right here in modern-day Turkey, right? He had enough size following. He couldn't just kill him. It would have caused an uprising rising within the province. So you can't kill him, you put him in jail, essentially. Right? So they banish him to the Isle of Patmos. Right? Uh, now there was a Christian community here in Ephesus. John, that's why John's here, because of the Christians that live here. Uh, it's also Christian tradition that you guys remember that it's John that um, Jesus from the cross entrusts his mother Mary to John, right? You guys know that? Christian tradition says that they they moved to um, Ephesus. And there was an early church there. This church actually was started before Paul. So uh, when Paul shows up in the 18th chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, there's already a burgeoning church there in Ephesus, right? A lot of it having to do with the fact that this is where John had settled I'm making this point that John's still kind of a powerful guy here, right? That's why he wasn't just, right? He wasn't just killed. Um, And according to Christian tradition, tradition for sure, after the assumption of Mary, the assumption of Mary is um, the euphemistic uh, way of saying when Jesus' mother Mary died and went to heaven, right? That's called her Assumption. It's just that's what they call it. John was definitely in Ephesus. Okay? So he's in this place, John the uh, disciple. It's very close to Patmos in these islands here, right? Here's Patmos on this map. There's Patmos over there in the blue on the other map. And people like John were kicked off. off off of the mainland and onto these islands. So, the the idea that maybe John the Apostle is the same John who writes and is John of Patmos, there seems to be quite a bit of evidence that this is who we're talking about. Right? And so, we have John the Apostle, the beloved (laughs) Apostle, is the one who actually gives the full revelation of Christ. Because it's in John's vision where the fullness of God's time is finally realized. This is the revelation is the conclusion to the story. You guys in these seven churches are under a lot of persecution. I, John, I am writing this letter to you guys to encourage you. And how I'm going to encourage you is I'm going to tell you how Jesus ends up winning this whole thing in the end. But before I do that, seven churches, I need to tell you some things you guys are doing good about yourself, and I need to tell you some things you're doing bad about yourself and fix them. Okay? That's actually what Revelation is. It's a part of these letters to these seven churches. Okay? Here's what's good about you. Here's what's bad about you. But guys... Fuck up, chin up, he says. John says, because let me tell you how the story ends. That's what revelation is. So what is it? It is a revelation of the fullness of who Jesus Christ fully is. And so how I would like to explain that is by breaking Jesus Christ down into five visions of Jesus Christ throughout the revelation. But before we get that, I want to tell one cool story about John. Remember how it's like John is like, except for Judas, he's the only one who wasn't martyred. But he was sent to an island. He was probably only on uh, the island of Patmos maybe a year or two. No, 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 before he actually returned to Ephesus and died. And not only that, guys, this is in the Aegean Sea. This is basically the Mediterranean Ocean. How bad is being banished to an (laughs) island in the Mediterranean? Hey, John, take a couple of years off. I'd
0: be okay with it. Right?
1: All right. Sounds like John's kind of like, compared to his other 10 buddies, and Judas, well, Judas is Judas. John's getting the easy way out. But let me tell you, there is this famous uh, theologian, church father, early church, uh, second century church father, Tertullian. Or Tertullian writes these uh, stories down about the early church, uh, stories that have been transmitted orally to him as someone who'd grown up in the church. And so at 200, he's kind of writing uh, a memoir about the last 200 years through stories he had heard as Christianity had developed over those years, right? So that those things, these early things in the early church can be memorialized. He, it, the story, or the name of this work, is The Prescription of Heretics, Crazy title, right? But he says that John was indeed banished to the island of Patmos, and this is the same John, but in case you think that he's getting off uh, easy, Tertullian says he was only banished to Patmos after they had a spectacle in the Colosseum in which there was a vat of oil brought out, and the apostle John was dipped in the boiling oil and rather than boil and die, preached from the boiling oil. And everybody in the Colosseum that saw it was instantly converted. How about that for a story, right? So maybe John, if you want to believe that kind of story, maybe John did suffer uh, in the way that the others. Anyway, John's exiled to Patmos and he's actually lived in a cave that you can visit today, right? The place where it's reported that an angel of the Lord visited John and gives him visions that are recorded in the revelation, the revelation of Jesus. If you read chapters 2 and 3, again, in chapters 2 and 3, we're going to find that what revelation, the revelation actually is, is a letter to these seven churches. So, like I mentioned just a second ago, What I'd like to do is break the book into five specific sections and then I want to encourage you also again to not just listen to me tell you what revelation means and what's in it, but read it for yourself. It'll only take about 45 minutes. Read it for yourself. Don't just take in just, well, the pastor said blah, blah, blah. Well, guys, the pastor says blah, blah, blah all the time. (laughs) Go make sure you figure it out for yourself. Okay, But you can take out your Bible app. If you got that on your phone, you can start it right now. But I'd like for you to re- read the Revelation in the light of these five sections. The five main themes that we're going to cover. And I want you to look at who Jesus is in the Revelation. By examining who Jesus is in each of these sections. Remembering. That ultimately the revelation is a story about Jesus. right? And when you read the revelation in light of who Jesus is, hopefully you're not going to get freaked out. It's going to build your faith. Because that was exactly why the letter was written in the first place. To build the faith of these early Christians in the light of their present circumstances. Which as a Christian... In 95 A.D. was not very good. Okay? So remember, before it's about scaring you into becoming a Christian, about trying to convince you that UPC codes are really the mark of the beast, Mm -hmm. that whatever uh, left behind craziness that you might think of when it comes to the revelation, first and foremost, the purpose of the revelation is to give we Christians hope. In light of a world that is falling down around us. And that's exactly how these church, uh, churches felt during this time. Under Roman rule. And it's exactly how we feel today. Right? And why is that the case? Because the book of Revelation is not some secret code. It's not some puzzle to predict the end of the world. Rather... Again, it's this message to these churches and ultimately what it says to them and to us today is it's an indictment that every earthly kingdom you can think about, even church kingdoms that are founded for the good reasons, every earthly kingdom, right, will eventually become Babylon. That's the point. That's why Christ has to return. We cannot make the world perfect. No matter how hard we try in our own earthly kingdoms, we will fail. So if we really believe that there is such a thing as complete restoration in God, then at some point the earthly kingdoms must fall all to God's heavenly kingdom. Yes? That's what this discussion is all about. So I'm going to break the whole book down in five sections, so get ready and listen fast. Okay? Dive in section one. This includes chapter one through chapters three. And I want you to, once again, read one through three. And as you do, think of this theme. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. The theme of the first three sections, this overarching idea, right, in your notes there, is that Jesus is returning soon. That's the overarching theme, the source of hope for these Christians. Okay, let's look at what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, John has this vision. John says, look, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. This is not the first return. This isn't the rapture part. This isn't what we looked at in week one, when he comes back like as a thief. Those who are left behind don't even know what happened. This is the second coming. The first, he comes for his church. This time, he comes with his church. Remember how we talked about that? To establish a new heaven and a new earth. And every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And all of the peoples of the earth will mourn because of them. So shall it be. Amen. And then it goes on to say, Jesus' words, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, Almighty I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. You guys see me uh, bringing up Greek in these lessons all the time. It's because the New Testament is originally written in Greek by Greek speakers for Greek speakers. So they use the Greek alphabet. I am the Alpha and the Omega in in what we would say. I'm A to Z, right? I'm everything in between. I was there before the beginning of the world. Now, hear me out. He's saying two things. Listen, I, w- I am here at the beginning of the world, and I am already in the end. Right? I am here in the beginning of the world. Do you guys hear how I'm using the verb tense there? Because God is. Right? God is. Where is, what is, who is, how is, yes, and everything you couldn't even think of. Every data point in between, from east to west, God is. I am already in the end. I'm the beginning, and I'm the end. And if you want to know, early Christians, modern day Christians... If you want to know what's going to happen, you don't need to worry because I've already written the last page of the book. And if you're a Christian, is that something we should be afraid of and acknowledging? Of course not. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end. I will show you how it ends. And it ends with good news. Because I, Jesus, the love of God am there in the beginning, and I am there in the end. John goes on in his vision, verse 14 and 15, he describes Jesus this way. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze in the furnace. And his voice was like that, like the sound of rushing waters. He goes on to say, in his right hand were held seven stars. Now I'm gonna just use this very weak example as an example that you're going to encounter all throughout the reading of Revelation. Whenever it says Jesus is holding seven stars, could Jesus, I mean, is Jesus literally holding seven stars? No, they will actually find that he's referring to the angels of the seven, of these seven churches. There is tons and 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 tons of symbolism in Revelation. Don't take everything in Revelation literally. There is tons of imagery here. Right? And again, John actually explains that these aren't stars. They're the seven angels of the seven churches of Jesus Christ. The purpose of this book, if you were to hear one sentence whole night as a matter of fact you hear this sentence if you don't want to hear me back this up you can go home the purpose of the book is to strengthen the faith of the members of these churches and through the power of the holy spirit to we today by giving to them and us the assurance that deliverance from evil powers is certain and it's close at hand The book is written so that we Christians may know that the ultimate defeat of evil, that the ultimate coming of God's justice, one is certain and two is close at hand. Okay. He says in his hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double edged sword. Again, don't take this literally. This is not some circus trick. Right? Jesus doesn't pop off of the, you know, the sideshow and goes, all right, watch, ready, and like pull swords out of his mouth. No. The double-edged sword is actually referring to the word of God. It's symbolism. Right? A double-edged sword was a symbol to Hebrew people of, of Scripture, of the, word of, his, of the word of God. So, out of his mouth comes the word of God. Right? A theme over and over again. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. And it goes on to say, When I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet, though dead. Now, I think this is interesting, because remember, John is the beloved disciple. Now, obviously, Jesus loved all of his disciples, right? But Christian tradition, at least generally confirms that, that he and John had some special relationship. That, that John was considered the beloved disciple by Jesus, not just calling him that self in his own book. Um, so John was this friend of Jesus, a special friend of Jesus. But what's interesting is when John sees him, right, it's not like, bro, right? Because John's not encountering, in Revelation, his bro, Jesus. Right? He's encountering the Alpha and the Omega. This isn't buddy-buddy. He's in the presence of the first and the last. John falls on his face in awe, in worship as though he was dead. But what does Jesus do? He places his right hand on John and said, As... (laughs) Angelic beings have said throughout Scripture, do not be afraid. Why is the book of Revelation written so that these Christians and so that you Christians don't be afraid hear that message? Why? Why should I not be afraid? Because Jesus, your Savior, is the first and the last. He goes on to say, I am the living one. And here's where we'll see the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, repeated over and over and again through the Revelation Jesus says, he actually says it outright. He says, I was dead, but they couldn't keep me dead. And I came back. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am back, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. If you see Jesus in the Revelation... It'll build your faith. Section one shows us Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the soon returning King of Kings for his church, the Bride. The second section, chapters four and five, uh, these are two good chapters to kind of read together, four and five. And when you read these two chapters, four and five together, ask yourself, who is Jesus in four and five? And the answer, Jesus is is the Lamb of God. 28 times in Scripture, in Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. 28 times. What's the main theme of this section? Jesus is the Lamb of God worthy to open the scroll. You might ask yourself, rightly so, what in the world does that mean? Well, read for yourselves, chapter 4 and 5. And what you'll see is this. That God is on the throne... And in God's hand, he holds a giant scroll that's sealed with seven seals. And the scroll is kind of like uh, the last will and testament of humankind. It's kind of a declaration of all that is to come and that all is to happen for the uh, people of the earth. And John is like, ha, 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 I want to see what's on this scroll. And so an angel says, Well, who's worthy to open up this scroll? And everybody's kind of looking around heaven. And they're kind of freaking out because they can't find anybody. John starts to get freaked out. He panics. John actually starts to cry. Because they can't find anyone who's worthy. When suddenly John looks up and he sees a lamb. You can read about it. It says this way in scripture. Verse 6 of chapter 5, John. Then I saw a lamb, which is Jesus. Jesus. Looking as if it had been slain. Remember, Jesus was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. Standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders, we read on. And they sang a new song to Jesus, the Lamb of God. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. And here again, the good news, the gospel message in Revelation. The gospel of Jesus being proclaimed once again. Because you, Lamb of God Jesus, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Now, some of us might go, I don't get that imagery. And you might not, I get that, right? This is one of those things where I don't want to get into... Jewish interpretation. I don't want to stick to Christian interpretation. Right? But this would have, and the reason why is because this would have been incredibly powerful imagery for the people who would have read John the first time. His original readers, they would have remembered first what John the Baptist had said about Jesus. Right? Some of you might know who John the Baptist was. And you might know what he says whenever he saw Jesus, sees Jesus for the first time. What's he say? Behold the Lamb of God calls him the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's readers here in the Apocalypse would have also been very aware of what would have been known as the Passover, right? From Hebrew Scripture, when an angel of death would pass over all of the households and destroy all of the households unless they took an innocent lamb uh, without blemish and sacrificed the lamb and then took the blood of that lamb and painted the doorposts of the house on the top and on the sides of the house. And then when their homes were covered with the blood of the lamb, the death angel would pass over the homes and everybody in the home would be spared. This is to me amazing, incredible to think about all the way back right to the Passover in the right at the beginning of the Exodus story. Right? We This is the very, very beginning of the whole story of these people being freed from the Pharaoh, finding their way to the promised land. And it's a foreshadowing of ultimately what's to come in the New Testament of Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God. And when John says, I saw the Lamb of God who was worthy to open up, sorry, to open up the scrolls, everyone there... And heaven is filled with hope. Yes, our Jesus is worthy. He is the Lamb of God. So who is Jesus in the Revelation? He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lamb of God. The third section is (laughs) where it gets crazy. Chapter 6 through 18. If you're wondering, where's this stuff that I always hear about? The Mark of the Beast. Antichrist and the 666. Read chapter 6 through 18. This, This is where it is. Okay? If you want to freak out a little bit right before you go to bed, you know, eat a piece of pepperoni pizza and read chapters 6 through 18. Right? You'll have all kinds of crazy dreams all night long. (laughs) Who is the Jesus? Who is the Jesus in this section? Jesus is the righteous judge. When you read 6 through 18, remember that Jesus is the righteous judge, and the main theme is that one of Jesus commissioned. Is that he is to righteously judge the earth. OK? Now, you watch t- TV shows that have these kind of prophetic voiced guys or gals, right, with their poofy, weird hair, and right? now let me tell you about Israel, and let me tell you about the horror of Babylon and all that kind of stuff, right? When they're reading and doing that stuff, generally, they are either probably referring to stuff you would find in Daniel or in this section, Revelation 6 through 18, right? This is the kind of stuff that people, this is the gory detail stuff that people for some reason like. I have a few bonus thoughts about this section, though. It's not in your notes. I just want to hit these. Uh, You can jot down if you hear something you find of interest, um, if this is the kind of stuff you're interested in. Revelation 1 and 2 shows us the, uh, that the temple of Israel will be rebuilt. We don't know how. Uh, we don't know for sure why or how, but it's to be built there. It's to be rebuilt. Why, why would that matter, we as Christians, that the why rebuild the temple? Why do we need to rebuild the temple? Why do we not need to rebuild the temple? Where does God tabernacle with you now? In your heart, your, the whole, by way of the Holy Spirit. you you become the living tabernacle, goof. Right? We don't need to rebuild that big Solomon thing. God's right. God, where, why do we need a temple? So that we can encounter God. You need a building to encounter God? Heck no. We know that. You don't need me to tell you that. Right? But, we don't know how, why, whatever. But it's going to be rebuilt. If you're interested in the Antichrist... That's Revelation 13, 14 through 16. The Antichrist, the beast, rises and institutes the mark of the beast. Now, if you go looking for the word Antichrist in Revelation, you're not going to find it. But the Antichrist is synonymous with the beast. And if you read carefully, you'll see a woman give birth to a beast. And some of you ladies might say, I've already done that two or three times. (laughs) Right? Not that kind of beast. And if you're going to see in Revelation 13, 3 and 4, the Antichrist is killed and then raised to life again. Uh, all right. Now, this is the one thing I do kind of one of these weird details I want to pull out just because I think this this is the one I think is neat. And if you want to do the Bible study next week and you want to pick, pull out the one that you think is neat, we'll trade places and you can do this. Right. So if you, this one isn't the neat one for you, I'm sorry, but this one's the neat one for me. Um, you also will read it in Revelation 11 about the two witnesses that God uses to perform miracles and preach, they will be killed and also raised to life. These guys are pretty cocky. You guys should read about the two witnesses. When they prophesy, they can shut up the heavens so that it doesn't rain. They could issue any kind of plague they want at any time all over the earth. And if somebody wants to try to kill the two witnesses, they have this really cool trick to defend themselves. And it's so cool that I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Because I want you to go and read it for yourself. And say, dude, that's cool. No, 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 no. First of all, I can't even... My wife hates me because when I buy her a Christmas present, I, the moment I buy it, I call and tell her what it is. I can't hold... I just can't keep a secret. I can't keep a secret. I hate it. But don't mess with it. So I'm going to talk about the two witnesses for a second. These two dudes who show up in Jerusalem and they start prophesying, right? And they have these powers... They start preaching about the coming of the end of the world. Now, does anybody know who they're supposed to be? Moses and Elijah. Revelation eleven three 3 through 6. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees. I mentioned that earlier. <laughs> the two lampstands, stands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Here's how they get to kill people. If anyone tries to harm them, fire will come from their mouths and devour their enemies. Have you guys ever played Super Mario? What's the fire Yoshi? Oh yeah. And he hops along and he spits out fire and it sucks people up, kills them. Right? That's what the two witnesses can do. They can just spit out fire and devour you. You can do that any kind, anytime they want. Right? They could turn the water into blood. It's crazy. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Right? This is very, very interesting to me. Let me just read to you Exodus chapter 7, 17 through 21. This is talking about Moses. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed to blood. Remember, I just said they, these guys have the power to turn water to blood. The fish will die in the Nile, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink the water. Right? Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians couldn't drink its water and blood was everywhere in Egypt. How do we know it's Moses? Well, we know that one of the things that one of these dudes can do is take a stick and make rivers turn to blood. Hey, there's one other dude in this book that does that. Moses, right? Check this out. Second Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 10, Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Remember when we had the Bible study about how Elijah had this show-off on top of this mountain with the, all of the prophets of, uh, of uh, Asherah, Baal? Right? And they start dancing. They're trying to figure out who could, who, which God could start the fire first. Yeah. And then whenever Elijah, God starts the fire for Elijah, then he sends fire down upon the the, uh, prophets of Baal and consumes them. Fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Something Elijah has the power to do. It's kind of interesting that we just didn't open up our pack of uh, Old Testament Hebrew uh, characters in the Bible and went, who should the two witnesses be? Let's go uh, Moses and Elijah. It's kind of cool that somebody took the time to think, well, who does these things? Hey, Moses can do these things. Elijah can do these things. Also, uh, Moses and Elijah represent the law. Moses is the bringer of Torah, right? And prophecy, the importance of the law and the prophecy, of which Jesus becomes both, the law and the prophecy, right? And this comes from an old Hebrew tradition held that at least two witnesses uh, were needed to establish legal testimony. So why are there two witnesses there in Jerusalem at the end of time proclaiming the coming of God? Because, in Hebrew tradition, you need two witnesses to provide legal testimony. And that's what that is. Revelation 17, verses 12 and 13, Daniel 7, 24. Many people will uh, mention this is the art part about the Antichrist being raised up to assassinate world leaders, moving towards a middle one world government, globalist, I'm um, Alex Jones. And then Revelation 16 through 19 shows us the beast, the Antichrist, is defeated at the Battle of Armageddon. We talked about that last week. But as you read through these chapters, remember the theme is Jesus is righteous judge. And let me show you three different judgments uh, that are issued upon the earth. The first of the judgments is known as the seal judgments. And this is the four riders in the apocalypse part. That's where we see the moon turn to blood. Bloodshed for more about the quarter of the world's population dies from famine, plagues and beasts as a result of that judgment. The second set of judgments are known as the trumpet judgments. And this is with hail and fire mixed with blood falling from the sky. This is where we see poisonous locusts. And can I just pause right here for a second and just say how creepy that one is to me? Because, man, dead locusts creep me out. Can you imagine? It's going to a crunchy thing, you know? And, man, can you imagine poisonous locusts? No, thanks. Right? I'm glad I'm uh, not going to be around. A third of the vegetation destroyed. third of the water contaminated. A third of the sea creatures die. A third of the light is lost. A third of the world dies. Bad time to be on earth. Remember that all during this time, God still is giving people a chance to repent of their sins. There is still grace even in the midst of these judgments. The extent of God's love. The third set of judgments is the bold judgments. This is where sores will appear on, the, on people with the mark of the beast on them. Water turns to blood again, right? At some point, we're just going to get used to blood two O 0 is what we drink. I mean, seems like every time you turn the page in Revelation, the water's turning to blood again. I can't imagine working for the water treatment plant during the apocalypse. Sun scorches people, devastating earthquakes hit, 100-pound hail falls from the sky, right? And as I described this part, this is the part where a lot of people will say, I don't like this part. This is the gross part. This is the part that is stupid. This is the part that isn't fair. I don't like this part of the judgment part of the Bible. And admittedly, you can read this and go, this is some pretty serious stuff. Right? And a lot of people would hear me say this and say, that's not fair. This is important. If you missed last week, I want to cover again, very, very, uh, a very, very important principle. And that principle is this actually is indeed fair. We talked last week. I asked the question, how many of you know someone who did something wrong, something horrible, and got away with it? They were not punished. There was no penalty. There was no reconciliation for the horrible deed that they had done. They hurt something, hurt someone, something violent, something horrible, and they didn't have to pay. Whenever that happens, what do we say? That's not fair. Because inwardly we know that wrongdoing should be punished. And this is the time in history where God says, I am now, through Jesus, judging the world for its sinfulness. And as almost as if uh, you might sense that God might be sensing our skepticism, right? Is that really fair? An angel affirms this to John. Revelation 16, verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Jesus, the righteous judge, you are just in these judgments. You who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. Who's Jesus in the Revelation? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God. He is the righteous judge. Number four, 19 and 20, chapters 19 and 20, read these together. He's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. If you want to take notes to the main theme of this section, is when Jesus returns with his church. Let me read this uh, with you guys. Revelation 19 and 11, John says, he has this vision, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse. His rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like that of blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. The text continues. He is dressed in a robe that is dipped in blood, and His name is the Word of God. Remember John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was with God and, the, and God, and the Word was God. Verse 14 says the Word became flesh. In John's Gospel, Jesus, His name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following Him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword. Again, this is the word of God, which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, who is our Jesus. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of King and Lord of Lords. He is not running for the office of. He is not a candidate for King of kings and Lord of lords. He wears that because he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And when you read the revelation and who Jesus is in this book, it should build your faith because he is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Lamb of God, the righteous judge. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And in the final section tonight, chapters 21 and 22, the last two books, we see Jesus as the bridegroom. And we, friends, as the church... We, as the body believers, are the, are the bride. And the, the Bible teaches us the principle that Jesus takes us, the church, his bride, to the heavenly city. Revelation 21, verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, and I will show you the bride. That's the church. That's we Christians. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It goes on to say... And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. This is the new heaven and the new earth we're talking about. This is what we were talking about last week. Jesus, the bridegroom, comes back for us, the bride, and takes us to the new heaven and the new earth. Right? Where there's no crying, there's no more mourning, there's no more pain. In fact, this new heaven and this new earth doesn't even need a sun or a moon because in verse 23 it says the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives its light and the lamp is it the light lamb is its lamp that's hard to say and what is the king saying what is he saying at the end of the book of revelation the same thing he said from genesis to revelation what is he saying to people today that don't know him From the very beginning, at the very end, He's saying the same thing. Revelation 22 and 17. Come, and let him who hears say, come. Whoever's thirsty, let him or her come. Whoever wishes, let him or her take the free gift of the water of life. What does the Spirit and the bride, Christ and us, what do we say today? Come, are you thirsty? Let me give you this living water. Jesus says, I am the living water. If you taste me, you will never thirst again. And there are those of you, even now, maybe you're spiritually parched. And maybe you're thirsty. Searching for something and you know it. You spent your lifetime searching for somebody, somewhere, something that fills that emptiness inside. And the Spirit says, come, whoever you are, wherever you are, and taste the living water. And you'll never thirst again. The good news, friends, is this. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, Jesus, I am coming soon. Jesus offers these Christians, we Christians hope by saying, Yes, I am coming soon. Remember that phrase, Maranatha. Lord, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. How does the book end? The great, the unmerited favor, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. May the grace of our God be with God's people. That's why when you read the book of Revelation in light of who Jesus is, you're a Christian, you don't need to be afraid of the weird stuff in this book because he is coming soon and that is good. The Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb of God, the righteous judge, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the bridegroom to take his church to be with him forever. Friends, may the grace of God be with God's people forever and forever. Amen. Amen.
0: Any questions? Yes. You know, as I listen back to tonight's episode, I can't help but continue to hope that as you've listened, you can hear the hope that's contained within the revelation according to John. I had referenced Revelation 22 earlier whenever I talked about how there wasn't even going to be a need for light in the new heaven and the new earth. But That last chapter of Revelation, subtitled Eden Restored, and I just think it is such an incredible testimony to God's faithfulness, that this entire work that we have, this collaboration between human faith and divine interaction that we call the Holy Bible, this book that we study, begins with God entering the world, creating the universe, creating a place in which we might dwell with the Creator and through all of the ups and through all of the downs and perhaps if you're honest if you go from page 1 to the very end maybe there's more down than up in the story of God and his people but the faithfulness of God shines through with chapter 22 as Eden is restored that through it through it all through the sin the deception the tears and heartache through the entire human experience Eden is restored but the creation of God returns to the Creator it's a wonderful story it's one that should give us hope Amen Hey friends we'll see you next week and until then Be well.